Ave, and welcome to Emperors of Rome, a Roman history podcast from La Trobe University. I'm your host, Matt Smith, and with me today is Dr. Catherine Welch, Honorary Associate Professor in the Department of Classics and Ancient History at the University of Sydney. This is episode CXCIX, Sextus Pompeius. Sextus Pompeius was the youngest son of Pompey the Great and was responsible for leading the last great resistance of the Roman Republic against Octavian and Mark Antony. While he made the most of his late father's reputation, Sextus was a leader in his own right and to many a forgotten aspect of this period of Roman history. Here's Catherine Welch. Sextus Pompeius, he's the younger son of Rome's most profoundly important citizen, Gnaeus Pompeius Magnus, Pompey the Great, the great figure of the 70s, 60s and 50s in Rome, who, if we can really start the story, is the most profoundly important person in Roman history until he's not. (laughs) And the memory, unlike us, the memory of Pompey does not go away. It's there in the landscape, it's there in the literature, it's there in the stories, it's in the poetry, it's in the mythology. Pompey the Great's memory is a living thing through the entire Principate. And so, in fact, to an extent, to a lesser extent, is his younger son. So what was it like then growing up in Rome for Sextus Pompeius when you're the youngest son of one of the most important Roman figures and Rome is going through such a tumultuous stage of history at that point? What does that mean to grow up as that? Yeah, that's a great question. So if we take his birth date as 67, there's argument about this, but I think 67 is the most likely year. It fits best with some very conflicting sources, but let's say 67. So in 67, Rome was in one of those quieter periods. The first civil war had come to an end. There'd been a lot of politicking going on in the 70s. The consulship of 70 is the consulship of Pompeius Magnus and Marcus Crassus where civil war was averted and a quarrel between the two of them was settled. And between the two of them, although they may never have been good friends, they worked together to bring in the last of a reform project that ameliorated the worst excesses of Sulla's new constitution. So this is the moment when reform in the Roman Republic looks most positive. We're dominated by this story of decline and fall, But if we look at the 60s, there is a lot going on that might have meant Rome had quite a different history. And Pompey is driving that. So he's not just the son of Rome's greatest citizen. He's being born into a household that is leading the charge in the early 60s to reform the problems that had caused the First Civil War. Rome was very conscious of its problems. So they knew things had to change. His mother is Mucia, the daughter of another leading citizen, Quintus Mucius Scivola. So she, in her own right, is very important. She was Pompey's third wife, and he's to have a couple more. So don't believe that your mother is going to be there in your house for the rest of your life with a Roman marriage, especially not these big figures. Pompey was married five times. Mm. Yukia is the only one of his wives who produced children. So he's got an older brother who takes, of course, in the Roman tradition, his father's name. He's got a sister who, as the tradition goes, takes the Gens name. So she's Pompeia. And then we've got Sextus as the youngest. So 67, 
this is the year when after the consulship there'd been a hiatus for Pompey the Great and now he's about to get some big explosions. So it's this year that he undertakes the pirate war and this is possibly his largest success. So little baby Sextus, again, this just adds even more luster to his project. The following year, Pompey takes on the fight against Mithridates the sixth of Pontus and so he's absolutely at the zenith of his career. So this is how... In these first years, little Sextus Pompeius would have been growing up an absent father who is away in the service of the empire, raised by his mother Mucia and by the household, with all these stories coming back of a grand triumph. Pompeius returns to a raft of political problems, but he's huge. So in 61, he held his third triumph, a massive triumph displaying all the riches and cultural objects of the East, including trees and gardens and displays of the extent of Roman control, as as he said to have put it, when I left, that was the periphery of empire, now it's the centre. So in other words, he claims to have doubled the extent of the Roman Empire across to the East. And little Sextus Pompeius, a child, with his older brother, probably would have ridden on the trace horses of his father's triumphal chariot so that they could be promoted in the eyes of the Roman people. Mm. He would have had the best tutors. He would have had the best education. Nothing that wealth could buy would have been denied him. Everything around him would have been of the utter best. And this would have continued through the 50s, despite his father's vicissitudes politically. Nothing ever disturbed Pompey's situation as top of the food chain in Rome. In fact, his reputation increases in the 50s as he manages the grain supply. He's got two provinces in Spain, in the two Spains that he governs through legates, doesn't leave Rome in the 50s. So that would be a contrast with the 60s. Young sexist would have had a present father and a couple of new mothers because Mucia gets divorced just before Pompeius returns. And apparently she was a bit of a party girl. I hope she was. Pompey famously marries the daughter of Caesar, Julia, which was apparently a very happy marriage. And then when Julia dies in childbirth in 54, Pompey marries Cornelia, the daughter of his new ally, Quintus Metellus Scipio. And Cornelia apparently was also a very much loved and lovely person. I'm going to broad brushstroke a couple of things here because one, Empress of Rome has covered these in previous podcast episodes, but also I, I would like you to tell us what Sextus Pompeius is doing during this time. So Caesar comes to Rome the Republicans, his opposition, leave Rome. Pompey the Great is essentially leading those forces, or he's, he's right at the centre of it there. And there's a battle between the forces of Caesar and the forces of Pompey Pharsalus, which mm. Pompey the Great loses. Mm. He flees to Egypt and is betrayed. Now, that is a very broad overview of, of it all, and I, I've missed a lot out there. I could fill in details, but there's nothing I would disagree with. Okay. Can you Sextus Pompey that for us? Yeah, yeah. This is really an interesting question. Okay. So Sextus himself is about 17 and Pompey withdraws, as you say, to Greece. He's based at Dyrrhachium, which is Durazzo in Albania. He keeps his older son, Nias, with him. Nias will have been in his 20s. 17 or 16-year-old Sextus could have joined them, but in fact he is placed with Cornelia, the then wife of Pompey the Great, and they go to Mytilene, which is a place that's extremely loyal to Pompey the Great from his eastern campaigns. So he is parked more or less 
as the escort of his stepmother. Now, interestingly, the poet Lucan wants to paint Sextus Pompeius as the unworthy son of a great father, which is a trope in the Augustan and later literature, and he denies the historical record by placing Sextus at Pharsalus and the night before going off and conversing with witches and all the rest of it because you needed a very bad Sextus at that point, complete contravention of any other source that says he's over in Mytilene. But he's over in Mytilene and he's collected with Cornelia and they travel down to Egypt, as you say. Pompeius was the patron of the Ptolemaic house as it existed then, expected to be well-received. But, of course, there was a whole discussion before he gets off the boat and the supporters of, of Ptolemy thirteen, the younger brother of Cleopatra, the famous one, all decide that the minute Pompey gets off the boat, they're going to kill him, which they do. They behead him in the sight of Cornelia and Sextus Pompeius. So every source, even the hostile ones to Sextus, pick this moment of absolute horror as a wife and son would have been able to watch not just the death but the beheading of Pompey the Great. Mm, that would have been terrible to witness. Yes. And, and just to backtrack, I completely forgot that Lucan wrote about Sextus Pompeius raising the dead. Yes. There's that whole yes. scene where he raises the dead soldier, yes. isn't there? And it's a, yeah, yeah, a yeah, very yeah, strange yeah. scene. And that soldier tells the future and mm. laments the fact that he's being raised from the dead. <laughs> That's right. And it's all about it's better to be dead than to live in a republic that doesn't have a republican government. And how Sextus, by doing this, is part of the betrayal of that cause. All right. So he's he's witnessed the death of his father, the mm. betrayal of his father as well, and what Rome is becoming. So all of this, I guess, is very much molding his life viewpoint and I'm inferring that, but also the influence that he's going to get from his father's allies who are still alive at this point. What we do know is how it moulds the story of him. So the next we hear of Sextus in Lucan is he turns up in Africa, but that is, in fact, many months later. Cato, who is Pompey's right-hand man at this time, gathers up the remnants of the Pharsalus fighters, anyone who survived, and it takes them a couple of months to get all the troops over to Africa where Pompey's forces had in fact been successful in 48. So they all move to Africa and set up at Utica and surrounds and they hold Africa. This is months and months and months while Caesar hangs around in Alexandria. He meets Cleopatra who was or wasn't rolled up in a carpet and spends seven months, seven months hanging around in Egypt sailing up and down the Nile and producing a baby with Cleopatra. Mm. All this time gives Cato, Metellus Scipio and all the other forces time to regroup. Do we know what Sextus was doing in that time? We have no idea. But we do know, according to Lucan's account, at some point he turns up in Africa and Cato is trying to persuade everybody to continue the fight because there's this discussion and the po it's a poetic source but it kind of works. They're wondering why they're still fighting if Pompey the Great is dead. And Cato, according to Lucan, rises up and said, you are never fighting for Pompey the Great. You are fighting for the race publica. Pompey was fighting for the race publica, not the race publica for Pompey is the way it's constructed. Mm. Sexus has got to be part of that. Then the African forces decide to split and they send Gnaeus Pompeius and probably Sextus over to the southern Spanish province. And Gnaeus starts organising troops and allies in Spain, where the name Pompeius is 
absolute magic. If you say Pompeius in Spain, you can just build legions from people turning up. That was the reputation that Pompey the Great had in Spain. So you can sort of see that a few things for the future are being built up. Mm, yeah, definitely. In amongst all this happening, you've got Nice and likely Sextus over in Spain marshalling the forces there. But Caesar confronts Scipio and Cato and those forces at the Battle of Thapsus and wins that. And Cato and Scipio commit suicide as a result of that loss. Yes. And suddenly you've got the bulk of the resistance that is remaining being in the form of the two Pompey boys. Yes. And yes. possibly Labianus from the Gallic yep. Wars, yes. And there's a couple of others as well. Yes. But you're right. What you've had each time is a lessening of the respectability that comes from the numbers of big names, first after Pharsalus, some of them go back. Then at Thapsus, you've still got Cato, and Cato's reputation was enormous. Metellus Scipio loses the Battle of Thapsus. Cato is actually holding Utica and kills himself before Caesar can get to Utica, but tells the people of Utica that they should just make their peace with Caesar. So he sees that there's just no further point in holding Africa. Caesar then goes back to Rome, and he's finally in Rome for several months. And a whole lot of Caesar's legislation happens then. Mm. There's hope in Rome that there might be some kind of settlement between Caesar and those who came back. Some of them, like Gaius Cassius, who had made their peace with Caesar, decide to leave again. Cicero is completely anxious because he's trying to make his peace with Caesar, but then he has to face the fact that Cato might win. And where does that leave him when he's deserted that cause and made his peace with Caesar? So there's a lot of worry about how that's going to play out. So this gives the Pompey boys, as you call them rightly, months and months and months to recruit forces and call upon that support for the name of Pompeius in both the Spanish provinces, mm. which means that although they don't have the big names anymore, they still have a monumental amount of support. And it's at this time that you get the whole Pietas trope happening, the idea that these guys are the sons of Pompeius, that they're fighting not just for the res publica, but for the memory of Pompey the Great. Mm. So when Caesar finally goes over to Hispania and confronts them in the Battle of Munda, we've mm. got some accounts of that which essentially tell that uh, Caesar thought that he was fighting for his existence, that his troops are very reluctant to go into that sort of battle. And Appian has an account in particular of Caesar leading the forces himself and dodging missiles mm. and uh, swerving away mm. from arrows and shaming yeah. his troops into action. Yeah. I think Caesar fought for his life more than once. We know he did. From my point of view... Caesar is one of those guys that was known for his physical bravery, but also don't forget he's in command of the storytelling. Mm -hmm. So we've got his own Gallic War commentaries, we've got three books of Civil War commentaries and magnify that reputation for bravery that he undoubtedly deserved, but maybe not quite as much as, <laughs> as after the event when he's won. Mm. <laughs> We do undoubtedly, though, have him winning that battle. And not long after this, you've got the last stand of Gnaeus Pompeius, who dies on the run with an injured foot. Appian's particularly poignant on this. Mm. We get a whole raft of poetry later on, little epigrams talking about Pompey and his sons being buried in three continents. So you've got Pompey being buried in Africa, in Egypt, 
Nias in Spain, and then eventually, of course, Sextus is going to die in Asia. So you get the idea of the downfall of Pompey's own person and his household, and how this takes an empire to bury them, if you like. So Sextus Pompeius is in need of resources at this time. Appian says that he resorts to piracy, but this is something that can be disputed? Is disputed is absolutely disputed. The piracy thing was a common way to bring down your opponents, but it does reflect, going back to even Pompey the Great, an un-Roman way to fight, which is on the sea. Lesteria is actually the Greek word for piracy that Appian uses there, and he's actually referring to land brigandage. So you get the idea that now Sextus Pompeius is actually without any form of respectable connection to Rome, which is not true. And it never was true. He always had important Romans on his side. So he's not at Munda. He's in Cordoba. He gets away and then very quickly moves up through Spain. And rather than brigandage, he's actually using that name magic again to reform another army. Never stops for Sextus Pompeius in these months. And he's a young man in his 20s. He's very young. He is just a few years older, five years older than young Caesar, Octavian, who's going to come along later, that we always think of as a teenage phenomenon. There's not that much in it between their ages. Mm. And this all happens while Caesar is back in Rome celebrating his triumph over Gnaeus and Sextus and then getting assassinated. So all our sources talk about Caesar's civil war ending at the Battle of Munda. That's not the end of it, though, is it? So here's the thing. The civil war does not end. I even caught John Carter breaking an Appian sentence into two when Appian actually has a comma Mm. to try and put a hard break between Sextus in Spain and Caesar in Rome. But Appian, no, he actually tells the story as though this is a continuation. Once again, we see the moderns wanting to simplify what the ancients knew was more complicated. So he just continues. And the generals that are left to mop up get treated very badly. He does very well against them, including the historian Asinius Pollio. So the Spanish war does not stop at Munda. It keeps going. And this is why you need to delegitimize it because you don't want it to be the same war. But it is. It just is. It's just taken a different form. So this all happens. And then Caesar is assassinated in March. This is a year after Munda almost. And we actually have quite soon after that, Appian recording this idea that Antony, after Caesar's assassination, tries to bring Sextus Pompeius back. It's almost certainly not true. He might have moved to negotiate with him. We don't know, but it seems that Appian has transposed what happened in November back to March, April or May or something like that. But it just doesn't ring true that that's what Antonius would be doing at that time. Okay, okay. Well, that makes a bit more sense. Yeah, so it's not Mm. you. I do like, though, very much that you've got the acknowledgement from Appian that, uh, well, at least this is coming from the words of Mark Antony, that uh, Sextus Pompey is still very much beloved by all. So that kind of shows that there's a lot of public sentiment there for him, even in these records, which is good. There is. Oh, my word, there Mm. is. That's a key. When Caesar holds a triumph over the sons of Pompey, Plutarch tells us the people of Rome were disgusted. Mm. They hated it. They booed Caesar. They were really unhappy that he would deign to hold a triumph and, as it's put, over a necessary victory but not a joyful one. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Romans against you know, Romans, so, yes. yeah. And it was the first time that he blatantly held a triumph for a civil war victory. He'd hidden it in 
other subterfuges. He tried to pretend that the war wasn't actually against Romans. Held no triumph whatsoever for Pharsalus. He knew what would happen to him if he didn't. Yeah. So he's still in contact with a lot of allies in Rome. So what changes for Sextus Pompey once Caesar is assassinated? How did the power dynamics in Rome view him then? So Antony and Lepidus do bring about peace with Sextus Pompeius. Peace is made. Sextus Pompeius' citizenship is restored. Okay, so he doesn't come back to Rome, but he is brought back into the Roman community through this resolution. Sextus gives up his legions, but not his ships. So then he hangs out at Massilia for some months, and there's all sorts of toing and froing going up and down through Italy with the whole situation of Antonius besieging Mutina, nasty little war around that, Cicero trying to direct the traffic down in Rome as a senior senator. And one of the things that happens in those moments is that Sextus Pompeius by the Senate is made praefectus classis et orae maritimae, that is prefect of the fleets and the maritime shores, mm. with powers to match his father's. And that's the powers that Pompey the Great got in the pirate war. So he gets an official mandate from the Senate to raise ships. This is really an important ingredient in the story. He's made a praefectus, he's got a proper commission, and that's what he clings to in the next months. Then when everything falls apart in Rome, Mark Antony's been defeated, runs away to Gaul, young Caesar now comes back to Rome and takes over the consulship in August, holds the Pedian trials which finally convict the assassins of Caesar, and for good measure he throws Sextus Pompeius into the mix Wow! as an associate mm. of the assassins. So he's been condemned by the Pedian court, and then, as you rightly say, when the proscriptions happen, which is after the formation of the Triumvirate in November, Sextus Pompeius is added to the list of the proscribed. So does Sextus Pompey kind of become a flag for people to rally around almost? I mean, I know you've got Brutus and Cassius, but you've also got Sextus Pompey as another credible force. In my view, yes. This is what I argued 10 years ago in, in my book. We always talk of Brutus and Cassius. We get little signs in some of the literature. They talk about Brutus, Cassius and Sextus. There's tropes in which the three of them are put together. To come back to Appian in Book 4 and Dio, tell us that the reason why so many people escaped the proscriptions is because with those ships, Sextus takes hold of Sicily and is still praefectus classis et orae maritimae, or the triumviral government can be seen as so illegitimate that he can claim to be, saying that the government's been hijacked, so he's keeping his commission that proper senators gave him. So you can see that there's a, a way in which they could delegitimize the triumvirs by saying, I got given this by a free senate, and now they're all under the control of this newfangled way of doing things, which no Roman has ever done in the past. He has his fleet patrol the waters of the western coast from Sicily, from Messana, which is modern-day Messina, and pick up people. And he offers twice the reward that anyone would have got for turning up with a head. So you're going to be rewarded for killing someone on the proscription list. Sextus says, I'll give you a double if you give me a live person. So he's not just passively receiving these people, he's actively trying to rescue them mm. through using this navy. Now, this is absolutely in our sources and it makes a big difference. So that means a lot of people do get away. All you had to do 
was get out of Rome by some subterfuge or other, and we've got massive amounts of literature on the stories of what I did or what happened to grandpa or what happened to grandma during the proscriptions. It's a huge, huge, huge body of literature, but so many of them escape to Sicily because it's convenient, it's close. So at what point does Sextus Pompeius make Sicily his base of operations? It's sometime within late 43, possibly before the proscriptions, if not then soon after. I think it's just before because it seems to happen quite peacefully. There's a governor down there who seems just to let him in. Yeah. He's waving that prefectura around mm. to back up his claims. It's amazing that young Caesar must have seen that as such a threat because that is essentially on Rome's doorstep. It's Nowhere. such an important base as well when you're talking about, you know, trade and grain coming from Egypt and that sort of thing. And it's yep. it's like a doorstop on the Mediterranean, if you want to look at it that way. It actually holds Italy. And to come back to Pompey the Great, he wanted to hold Sicily in 49 because you can actually hold Italy by the throat if you hold Sicily, and particularly with respect to the grain supply. And this is where keeping an eye on Africa throughout the entire civil war is useful as well. Whoever holds Africa has also a big grip on the grain supply and a big grip on what you can do to politics in Rome by making sure people are hungry and angry. So to jog history along at this point, you've got the Battle of Philippi and the death of Brutus and Cassius, and what many would say is the death of the Roman Republic and its resistance. But there's an asterisk to that. That asterisk is Sextus Pompeius. Then in the background of all of this, you've got the Triumvirate in control together, but it's a very uneasy alliance. So, what does Pompeius's resistance look like at this time? Yes, you're right. At this point, everybody inserts death of the Republic narrative. We even get people like Appian and Dio saying, yeah, we know things continued, but it just wasn't respectable after that, and we don't need to take any notice because nobody important was around. And then Appian still writes another whole book. A whole book. book. <laughs> <laughs> it's absolutely huge. It's massive, the amount of information he gives us in Book 5. And, and Sextus Pompeius is behind pretty much every episode. The most important thing to note about the loss at Philippi, for our point, is that the Triumvirs could make no headway whatsoever against the navy of Brutus and Cassius and Sextus Pompeius. And they had a massive navy in the Adriatic as well as controlling Sicily. So the navy is under Lucius Deus Mercus and nice Domitius Ahenobarbus, and the navy in Sicily is under Sextus Pompeius. Mm. And that causes so much grief. And also there's problems over in Spain because although it's nominally held by the Triumvirs, the Spanish peoples don't like it. Again, coming back to this incredible loyalty to Pompey the Great. So there's trouble at all kinds of points around the empire, but the most critical thing is that they don't command the seas. And they're not doing anything really to change that until Antonius starts getting serious about building a fleet. Mm. So they can more or less call the shots with respect to grain. They can call the shots with respect to the ports of, of Italy. They can isolate uh, Lepidus down in Africa. They really do control the show. And is it the tensions between the triumvirate then that force them to try and acknowledge that Pompeius is a problem then? This is disputed by scholars. So I'll give you my line yeah. and then people can disagree with it if they like. There's always trouble between Antonius and young Caesar. It's just there from the beginning. It's there at the end. They don't love each other, in my view. So after Philippi, young Caesar comes back to Italy and he has to settle all the soldiers. And I know you've done a separate podcast on the Battle of Perusia, 
But I'll simply say that Lucius Antonius is besieged at Perusia. He has to surrender. A whole lot of people have to run away from Italy, including Fulvia and Antony's mother, Julia. And where does she go? She goes to Sextus Pompeius on Sicily. Okay, at that point, I think he'd been independently supporting the war in Italy, but there's no formal alliance. But at this point, Julia turns up. So what does Sextus do? He gets his father-in-law, Lucius Scribonius Libo, and his most respectable allies, and they escort Julia across to Antony in Athens. And that's when I think a deal is forged between Antony and Sextus. Right. And that's when we see Antony on one side of Italy and Sextus on the other attacking the ports. But two things happen. One, Agrippa starts beating them. So we have finally the entrance of Marcus Vipsanius Agrippa on the scene, and of course he would be the person that won the important battles for young Caesar every time. And the other is that the soldiers and the officers and people like Gaius Pollio, who is absolutely Caesarian, do not like this. And so they work on bringing young Caesar and Antonius back together. Mm. This alliance could have been really successful, but it isn't for two reasons. One, Antony starts losing to Agrippa, but otherwise we actually see the undermining of Sextus. So he's put to one side. At the Treaty of Rhodesium, you see the Caesarian forces reuniting and Sextus is left out. Mm, okay. So we've got Sextus Pompeius holding Sicily. Some of the sources saying being piratey in his nature. There's the word ravaging used and all that kind of thing. He takes Corsica at one point and I think Sardinia, but there is a peace treaty with the Second Triumvirate. Well, okay, so here's the thing. Now we finally have a real blockade of the grain supply. Mm. It's been happening on and off all the way through. So Sexus Pompeius and his mates are furious that Antony reneged and he cuts grain off and we've got a winter from November 40 when the Romans are starving. Really, really badly done by. The Roman population, according to our sources, do not blame Sextus Pompeius. Mm. The sources are so hostile that I think if there'd been any better information, they'd have used it. Anybody who knew what was going on blamed young Caesar because he was the one who did not want a peace treaty with the son of Pompey the Great. Even Antony got off a bit more lightly because it was seen that he was more amenable to a, a treaty with Sextus Pompeius. So there's riots, there's protests. Eventually the Roman people, we're told, go to the house of Mucia, mum, who'd remarried in the meantime and had another child and, and continued on with her life, but they go to the house of Mucia and they threaten to burn it down if she will not go and talk to her son, Sextus Pompeius, about making a deal. People of Rome want this blockade of the food supply to stop and they expect both sides to come to the table and talk about it. Sexus Pompeius is reluctant because mm. he doesn't trust them. His supporters are all for it. Young Caesar is reluctant, but Antonius is all for it. <laughs> <laughs> so everybody around them finally bring these two together at Misenum and a treaty is struck. It's a very interesting treaty. It's talked about as a blip on the landscape of Roman history. I think it's fundamentally important, and I'm going to put it out there, makes the Augustan Principate. What makes you say that? Well, under the terms of this treaty, the 
proscribed who were not assassins of Caesar were given back their citizenship and a quarter of their property. Now, they got this not through being pardoned, not through being forgiven, but through the Treaty of Misenum. They come back on their own terms, except, of course, they miss out on some of their property, but they get their social citizenship and their social status back. Mm. All right? So that means a whole lot of people that were opponents of the Triumvirs come back to Rome more or less on their own terms. Moreover, the people who gathered on the shores saw it as the most joyous occasion and the real proper end of civil war. Wow. Okay, they wanted a settlement to civil war. They didn't want more fighting. And we get pages of Appian going on about how joyful people were and how they thought that this was a proper resolution to war. To bring back the son of Pompey the Great into the community was his rightful place. Mm-hmm. Plutarch's got a very nice story of them all hosting a dinner each. Yes. And Sextus Pompeius having a dig essentially at Mark Antony by hosting the dinner on his own ship and saying that this is the ancestral house that is left to Pompey. Yeah, because Mark Antony was living in his father's (laughs) house in the Carini. (laughs) And Carini is the word for keel. So it came through. So we get a little bit of a bitter sense of humour, and we also get the story of Menas or Menadorus, his naval captain, saying, if I cut the keels now, you could get rid of these guys, and Sextus Pompeius saying no. So we get the quintessential justice, um, Sextus Pompeius, but we get the quintessential problem in that his father's estate had been divested and they were all living on the fat of it. Meanwhile, of course, he was still an outcast. So uh, you can sort of see that the personal relationships between these guys already going to undercut the settlement that the Roman people actually wanted them to make. So there's a treaty agreed to, and that seems like a positive outcome, but where does it start to all fall apart then? Well, you turn the page in Appian and he tells you that as soon as the treaty happened, Sexus goes back to Sicily, which is now, again, a legitimate part of his command, There are stories of piracy starting up again, but in fact, the way it's told is really interesting. It's an accusation by young Caesar about Sextus Pompeius. Mm. Appian is actually quite careful to say that it wasn't necessarily Sextus doing these things. It was young Caesar saying that he was doing them. In other words, there seems to be an underlying narrative there that young Caesar wants to stoke the fire and get some action again so that he's got an excuse to reignite hostilities towards Sextus Pompeius. So it's quite careful the way it's told. Okay, okay. So th- there's deliberate provocation there, it almost sounds like. Almost sounds like that. At the same time, Antony is busy with Parthia and he doesn't give Sextus Pompeius Achaea, which is the northern Peloponnese, which he was meant to under the terms of the treaty. So all the Romans go back to Rome. There's big rejoicing. They all go home. We've also divested Sextus Pompeius of a lot of his big-name Roman support. Not all of Mm. it. Some of them don't go, but a lot of big-name Roman support. The other thing, too, is the very last remaining named assassins of Caesar are still with Sextus Pompeius because they're not allowed back to Rome. So he keeps them safe in his camp, Mm. but that's going to be a cause of friction as well. Yeah, it almost looks like harboring the enemy. And at the same time around here, you've got a breakdown, very much a cooling between Mark Antony and young Caesar. 
So is Sextus Pompeius at this point almost seen as something that needs to be resolved for young Caesar, lest it become a problem again? Uh, Yes, that's one way to put it. Or another way to put it is he's absolutely determined that he's got what he wants out of Misenum. The Roman people are off his back and all the rest of it. And now he just needs an excuse to take him out completely. Meanwhile, of course, Antonius is more and more wrapped up in affairs over in the East and particularly with his Parthian campaign shoring up his support in the east and i think he would have preferred there to be less trouble over in the west but if there was trouble he wasn't going to get in young caesar's way because his big preoccupation was parthia so this leaves young caesar free to make these claims about renewed piracy whether they're true or not he starts then to get his own ships together leads them down to sicily in 38 and gets totally and utterly smashed by Sextus Pompeius and his generals. Mm, not by the weather, as he'd have us believe. The weather helps, but basically it's a combination. And even the weather, as it's told, is his stupid captains had no idea what to do with ships during us. Whereas Sextus, having all these experts like Menadorus and Menecrates and all these guys, they all knew what to mm. do. They all knew to tie their ships up. They were expert seamen. And the commanders for young Caesar were actually stupid. And so the ships were left to the mercy of storms. And, of course, what happens then is this is interpreted as Scylla, the Homeric monster, coming to the aid of Sextus Pompeius. How interesting. Absolutely. Scylla is on Sextus Pompeius's coinage. Mm. And, again, to refer back to my friend Anton Powell, he absolutely delighted in Scylla being this half-female and snaky-bodied with dog heads would reach out and grab the sailors from the ship. Yeah, nasty but cool. How does young Caesar rebuild his fleet then in anticipation of confronting Sextus Pompey? He has to lick his wounds and withdraw in 38, Mm. and 37 then turns out to be a very quiet year. So Antony's busy getting ready for his Parthian campaigns, uh, getting back with Cleopatra and producing more children, young Caesar biding his time, But what's happening is it's the consulship of Agrippa. We have renewed signs on the coinage about the whole idea of avenging Caesar, which was what gave the triumvirate its fundamental reason for being anyway. Not much military activity, but this is where Agrippa takes over the area around Kumai. He takes a whole year to build the facilities and then train the fleet. And only in late 36 is that, magnificently equipped and trained fleet ready to sail to Sicily. Mm, mm. And there's also an exchange with Mark Antony as well for more ships, so you've got an even larger fleet coming over. Yep, this is right. Antonius had to finally bite the bullet and decide to side with his fellow Triumvir and lend him ships in return for soldiers that he never got. (laughs) (laughs) Very bad deal. (laughs) And you've also got Lepidus bringing forces over from Africa, so it's a real triumvirate convergence It is the last time that we see the three of them acting together. Mm, mm. So the history books like to collect these under a very broad catch-all term. So what we have now is called the Bellum Saculum. And this is very broadly the last stand of Sextus Pompeius, isn't it? Sextus holds off at first. To come back to my friend Anton Powell, he loved the Battle of Tarimenium, which Sextus actually won, because that was actually Sextus against young Caesar, And again, it's a miserable failure on the part of young Caesar. He really wasn't very good Mm. on the battlefield. But that was all meant to be drawing 
Pompey away from Agrippa, who is holding Norlicus and the Lipari Islands off the north coast of Sicily, close to Messina. But Sextus gets back in time, and this is when we have the biggest naval engagement for a Roman fleet, I think, since the Punic Wars. And yet Dio gives us our only real description of it, and he goes into standard battle narrative for it. So we don't really know an awful lot about it, except that Agrippa's ships seems to have been bigger, and so they outclass Sextus's ships, even though Sextus's ships do very well. But I think it's the massive number of them that finally means that Agrippa can overpower and defeat Sextus at Norlicus. But it is a huge naval battle mm. on the 3rd of September of 36. It's a shame that we don't get a lot more detail beyond that. It is really a we get no- We get mm. numbers, but even those seem to be a bit vague. Yeah, and we get the idea that Agrippa used grappling hooks. Mm. It looks like the old Corvus, you know, from the First Punic War, but it's very hard to know, except that, of course, these ships were huge in number. Another detail that's really nice and again, because the sources are so hostile to Sextus, it's amazing that it survived. And that is that he seems to have had a kind of chain for picking up any of the sailors on the destroyed ships and getting them back to land. So he's rescuing his defeated sailors as their ships go down. He's trying to make sure they don't drown. Wow. Yeah, I know. It's just one of those little throwaway details that if you weren't Sextus fixated, you'd never pick up. I wonder how that worked. They're amazing. When you start to look at the detail from 48, how these guys run their fleets. So back in 48, Marcus Bibulus, the son-in-law of Cato, is actually running water ships because you can't keep rowing without water. Mm. And so you could only stay out there for a certain number of hours unless you could replenish the water of the rowers. And so he's actually got provision ships while he's blockading Italy to make sure these ships don't have to come back to port all the time just to provision the troops. Mm. So this is a defeat of Sextus Pompeius. Uh, there's also troops from Lepidus being landed on Sicily. So is fleeing the only option that he's got left open to him? Yes. So pretty much everybody on land surrenders. There's some dreadful things that happen. So quite a lot of the troops were enslaved people who would got out of Italy, possibly around the time of the proscriptions, and we don't know why, but they suffer a very miserable death. Mm because this is all about, you know, returning Rome to a proper social order. A whole lot of colonisation takes place, which means that the communities are punished by having to give up land to the troops that supported young Caesar. Sicily seems to have suffered very badly because of its loyalty to Sextus Pompeius. Young Caesar goes back to Rome and has a massive avatio, which is the thing you have when you're not having a triumph. (laughs) And he sets up monuments and he puts out coins about, you know, what a cool general he is. And all of that sort of stuff goes on. But it isn't liked. It isn't liked. Mm. Meanwhile, Sextus Pompeius gets away to Mytilene. So we get back to Mytilene, which we last saw in 48. And Mytilene takes him in. And then he travels to Asia and he starts to raise troops in Asia. And once again, they realize this could all happen again. Mm. The name magic, again, of Pompeius is so enormous And this is when finally the two remaining triumvirs, because Lepidus is relegated after a little confrontation in Sicily, the two remaining triumvirs decide he has to go, but they each want to blame the other. They each want the other to do it. So how does it actually happen? It comes down to Antony getting the job done. Yeah, he's captured. And even at that point, he's still appealing to Antony to say, look, you and I could join forces against this 
cruddy little monster. Mm. Why don't we do it? And I think Antony will have wavered. By this stage, he's been defeated in Parthia. He is on the back foot. He doesn't have any of that gloss that he hoped from a Parthian victory, and he has all the expense that's come about, including cred, from losing. But I think they'd all decided that if peace couldn't be made with Sextus Pompeius, then he had to go. Mm. Then it seems like Marcus Titius, whose life he'd saved in the proscriptions, executes him and then tells them about it later, shifting a blame between the two yeah, of them. Yeah, and, and this is something that young Caesar uses to say is one of the many things wrong with Mark Antony's character, yeah. that a, a Roman citizen was executed without a trial. After all that, can you centre this for me and tell me why is Sextus Pompeius somebody who is overlooked when you talk about the history of Caesar and Pompey and young Caesar and Mark Antony, why is there such a rush to get from one to the other when there is so much here, it seems, in the history books? Mm. Mostly it's sanity. We periodise for purposes of keeping teachers and students sane. The detail I've put together here, if you can imagine it, how do you teach it? People want to package Roman history in a way that students can digest. But I think the bigger historiographical point is that the moderns are completely wrapped up with, first of all, the career of Julius Caesar Mm. and then with the career of Augustus. And Antony gets left out of that story, let alone Sextus Pompeius. You need a republic to die or at least be moribund in order to justify Caesar. You need a republic to die in order to justify the principate. You know, Augustus is the one who finally comes along, rescues Rome from civil war and institutes peace. Mm. Instead, the way I've told the story is it's messy. I think it teaches us the complexities of history. It teaches us to go back to our sources and not always to accept the narratives in a textbook. Those narratives that we've got were all created in the 19th century, more or less, and they leave out so much that the sources like Appian, like Dio, for all their flaws, do tell us that Roman history is about going back to those narratives and our coinage and our inscriptions and having a look at the story for ourselves and asking some questions for ourselves about how they saw their history. Because what we should turn away from, and I'm learning this more and more and more, are those 19th century narratives that then influence 20th century narratives Mm -hmm. that leave out so much of the interesting stuff and teach us about the complexities of history and why we bother to keep studying it. Mm -hmm. And one of them very much being the story of Sextus Pompeius. Absolutely, absolutely, Mm. yes. That was Dr Catherine Welch. Honorary Associate Professor in the Department of Classics and Ancient History at the University of Sydney, and you have been listening to Emperors of Rome. If you like this podcast, you can subscribe in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or any readily accessible podcasting platform. Please leave a review. They are always very appreciated. You can like the Emperors of Rome on Facebook, and you can follow us on Twitter. Catherine isn't on Twitter, but I am at NightlightGuy, and the podcast is at RomePodcast. That's it today for Emperors of Rome. In the next episode, episode CC, I'll be with Rhiannon Evans in a special live show exploring the tale of Cleopatra and Antony. So until then, I'm Matt Smith. You've been fantastic. And thanks for listening.